Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host, Julius, and this is episode 93. Let me tell you a story. All right, welcome back, everyone. We're going to start uh, start the show. Yes, welcome back. Uh, glad to be back. I really enjoyed the last show. I had fun listening to it when I went back. This is Julius Besser. I'm here with Albert Hernandez. Hello. Hello. Make sure we actually introduce ourselves. They should know us by now. Uh, you never know. We <laughs> might get some new people coming along. That is true. We we have had a bunch of new listeners lately, I think. I do think so. And I hope maybe one day we'll actually you know join some of the bigger networks and get even more listeners. I have no idea. Yep. We could start our own network. Start our own <laughs> network, the Solar Players Network. There you go. Maybe. But I think we need to be exposing people who aren't solo players to solo gaming. Yes, that's a good point. That that, that would be more of an idea. That's a really good idea, actually. Hi, um, so have you seen Star Wars, Julius? I have not. I'm going to be waiting until it comes out on video rather than go out to the movies. Are, are you trying not to hear any spoilers? I am going to not hear any spoilers, <laughs> and that's the way it's going to be. You will not tell me spoilers, Albert. Do you understand? You will not tell me spoilers. Okay, I, I won't say a word, but you know, between now and it comes out on video, somebody's going to say something. I doubt it. I'm sure that after a little bit it's going to die down. I mean, many people have been talking so much about I don't want to hear spoilers, and so everyone's being annoying about telling spoilers, and it's just become a thing. <laughs> Give it a day or two, and it will all have died down, and everyone will have gone to watch it like 60 times. And be done with it. This was another thing I was telling my wife about the other day because I'm watching some people on Facebook who are like, "Man, I just went to see it. I'm going to go in and see it again and a third time." I'm like, really, guys? Why do you want to sit there <laughs> and watch through it multiple times? Not only are you just wasting money doing it multiple times, but is it really that much fun to see it multiple times? <laughs> well, you know, I did see it multiple times, and, and, yeah, and then- I am glad I did because we went. My, my wife bought tickets on opening night. And we were going to go see it. But then my local game store uh, rented out the theater for a showing and, and gave away tickets to customers. And, and if you bought a bunch of stuff, you get free tickets and stuff. So I had tickets to go the second time. And I went the yeah. first time with my family. And about an hour into it, my daughter was terrified and was shaking with fear. And and so so I, she and I left. And I did not see the whole movie. And, you know, I didn't mind because... Well, you didn't see it twice. I didn't, you just one and a half. see it one and a half times. That does, that's <laughs> not know, the same. The ending, as I know it from the first time, was very strange because <laughs> it was only an hour into the movie. But, uh, okay. yeah, so so I didn't see it and, and then went back and saw it again. And, and that worked out well. Well, I know that, like I was telling her, uh, just I don't understand why people want to do multiple times. And then, I don't know, are you familiar with the uh, YouTube series LARPs? No, I am not. No, it's a YouTube series. Do you know what a LARP means? Yes. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's a live action role play, um, where you're playing a role playing game, but typically you're doing it live action. So there's no die roll. You're actually physically getting up and talking to people and usually cards or paper, rock, scissors or some other method is used for determining success or not. So LARPs is about people who are actually dressing up in the costumes and really getting into it. And it's, it's a lot of fun to watch. So on Thursday, they just finished up. Uh, their season, they did their season finale for the second season. Hopefully not a series finale. I'd love if they got picked up for another, another season. Um, but so they just finished up their season finale and so I watched it and it was so cool that I went and watched it again. And then immediately afterwards I'm like, oh, I, I, I get why people do it now. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I still I still say that was free. That was on YouTube. I can't imagine going through and paying for it twice. But okay, fine. It was a lot of fun to go watch that a second time. You should go check out the 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 series. Maybe it will. LARPs, LARPs. on YouTube. Okay. L a r p s. If I could sit through, because I do find it hard to sit through video. I don't know why. Oh, do you? I do. Oh. It's because I never watch well, anything. These are these are pretty short. Usually, the last one was like a half hour, but they're usually like ten fifteen minutes. Okay. I could do that, but. But it's a lot of fun. I liked it. And I won't spoil anything of it for you. <laughs> Not that. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Did you also see about this man who got beat up over spoiling things? No, I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, yeah there was a news article that got released that some kid um, supposedly walked up to a line of people waiting to go watch Star Wars and spoiled the ending for everyone. And some other people went and beat him up. That's... I mean... I think this is entirely fake and not real, and I think that someone published this, and it's now going viral, and everyone's (laughs) publishing it. I imagine it's fake. But the fact that it's fake and it's still getting a lot of Mm -hmm. hits is still kind of funny. Maybe it's an exaggeration. He didn't get beat up, just got pushed around. Who knows? Either way, the guy's done for doing that, and everybody else is done for taking it that seriously. Unless it's just (laughs) entirely made up. Yeah, in which case. Then it's funny, I guess. Um Sort of. <laughs> I consider it funny that it's entirely made up and someone want to do it anyway. Anyway, so I think that's just about all the news we have to cover on the on the not board game stuff. I'd say that's it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> do we have any news on board game stuff? I, I have a couple things. We have some news and we have some mail I'd like to cover, which is Go sort ahead. of newsy. First up, the, there's a new expansion coming out for Elder Sign called Omens of Ice. Uh, if you're not familiar, Elder Signs is a Cthulhu-based dice game from Fantasy Flight, very similar to Arkham Horror and Elder Horror. Now, this expan- now you've played the app, haven't you? Omens of Ice? Yes, Omens of Ice. You've played Why the expansion. I can't find it when I search for it on Board Game Oh, uh, Maybe it's not on there yet. Now, you've played the app, right? It's got. I have. Have you purchased any of the add-ons? There's one where you go up into the Arctic Circle or something like that. It sounds similar to that, it, it, in that instead of being in Arkham, you're in an expedition up in the Alaska and, and the Arctic Circle. And, and you spend some time in town, and you got to equip yourself, and, and you go on to the more hostile parts after. At least that's what so you're saying it's not in the library anymore? It's not in the library at all. It's, it's not in Arkham. You, you've gone traveling up north. And that sounds like that, uh, the expansion that comes with the, the app. Yeah, well, no, there's a, there's a couple expansions with the app. I think there's also one that just gives you a couple extra monsters, but you stay in, um, in Arkham. And that's the one, that's the expansion that I did get for the app. Okay. The one I'm thinking for the app is, is Ithaqua, I think, the Windwalker. That might be the name of it. I don't remember for sure. I don't think I have that one. I'd have to pull it up, but I don't have my tablet by me. Okay. That's the only one I have. And apparently, if you beat it, it unlocks new characters and monsters. And I, I can't. You can't beat it? I haven't played in a long time, but no, I couldn't beat it. Oh, I don't think I have that, that expansion. Maybe, I think I have the other expansion. Okay, maybe I'll go back to it. I should at some point. Well, how much? do you know how much that expansion is going to be? I do not, but it's a small box, so my guess is it's $30. I don't think they announced a price yet, but let me go see. Okay, it looks like it's coming out first quarter of 2016, but I'm looking at the Fantasy Flight uh, website, but I'm not seeing any information on it. But... 
spinning off of this one being from Fantasy Flight, I think if you wanted, you will probably have a little bit more difficulty picking it up. Did you hear about what Asmodee is doing with Fantasy Flight and Days of Wonder? No. Okay, well, um, in case you didn't hear about this, uh, way back when, Asmodee bought out Days of Wonder and Fantasy Flight games. Um, both of those happened around summer, around summer of last year, even. Mm-hmm. So what Asmodee has announced is that they're going to be folding in Fantasy Flight and Days of Wonder, and both of those names are going to be stopping, and it's just going to be called Asmodee North America. Oh, that's a shame. So the, it's, it's not going to have, to, to my understanding of it now that this is, this is relatively new news, and I know that they said that they're going to be publishing more information about it, um, coming out, coming out on next Monday, which will be Monday the 21st. Um, but so they're not going to be calling themselves now anymore Fantasy Flight of Days of Wonder. So it's all just going to be under Asmodee North America. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm surprised. And, I, I thought they said there is, as a matter of fact, they're going to keep the separate, uh, names for a while. And, well, I don't know if they're, no. I don't know if they're dropping the names, but all of it is now going to be marketed and sold by Asmodee North America. So Fantasy Flight, Days of Wonder and Asmodee, all of them are just going through the same marketing and same, Public, uh, and some publication procedures and everything goes through Asmodee North America. So all of that is just going to be under one. Now that I don't know if that means that they're going to not call it Fantasy Flight or if they're going to, I don't know what they'll call it in the end. But what perhaps is more surprising to me was part of their new terms is that you're not allowed to sell anything from Days of Wonder, Fantasy Flight Games, or Asmodee outside of physical locations unless you have a special exemption. So you won't be able to get it online anymore. You will not be able to get these online. Now then, I don't know what that means by special exemptions. The special exemptions are specifically for, let's see if I can get an exact quote. <coughs> um, there's be special ones. Just a moment. Uh, that's what it is. They're, they're going to be very selective as to which online merchants will be authorized to sell products. To qualify as an online merchant, you'll need to contribute either significant scale, unique service, or other exceptional differentiation. Most online sales activities, including sales through third-party websites, will not be authorized. <clears throat> so is that going to be blocking out Amazon? Cool stuff? Is, I mean, it certainly appears like they're going... And they're also saying that you are now going to be limited in how much of a discount you can do when you do this. So this is sounding more like uh, what they do for sellers of Catan and mm-hmm. those and those games that you're not allowed to make very much of a discount on the uh, MSRP on the suggested retail price, um, which is what Mayfair does. Mayfair says that you can't do more than twenty percent of the suggested retail price. Yeah, but the but a lot of the online guys get around it by offering free shipping if you buy a Mayfair title. Yeah, I'm surprised that more of them don't offer also like you know free um, credit or something like that. Like if you buy, you know, a Mayfair title, we'll also give you a free uh, gift card to our store somewhere else. It essentially would also cut down the cost. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I don't know how much they're going to get around it. I have no idea. But I'm just, I mean, I'm personally surprised. So I guess if you want omens or if you want you know any of the other fantasy flight games uh and you want it online act soon i guess (laughs) i don't really know yeah that's that's a shame you know it sounds like you know people like cool stuff think if they're big enough they'll continue to be able to sell the games not a problem but they'll keep anybody new from coming on 
Like, I don't know. All that, what they said in the direct quote, most online sales activities, including sales through third party websites, will not be authorized. Mm-hmm. But then you went on to say something about upset for large volumes. Uh, right. You'll need to contribute either significant scale, unique okay. service, or exceptional differentiation. So, what's significant scale mean, right? What is significant scale? Does, I mean, does that mean? I mean, if you're talking about significant scale, are you talking Amazon? Because I'd say Amazon is probably most online sales activities. There's Amazon. There's cool stuff. There's a couple. Of, I mean, hmm. well, are they trying to cut out Amazon? If they don't cut out Amazon, how much are they really going to be cutting out? Yeah, but you know, the discounts on Amazon are, are not as good as as say cool stuff. Think. It, well, true. It's, it's much closer to retail. I don't think it's much closer to retail. I mean, let's for, let's take a look yeah. at for a few th- Fury of Dracula on Amazon. Here I go. Uh, it's sixty dollars MSRP, and they're selling it for forty dollars. Hmm, okay. When I was looking at, let me let's look at something by Days of Wonder, because that's what I was looking at earlier today. I'll do five yesterday. tribes. Five tribes. It's sixty dollars uh, MSRP, and they're selling it for forty nine dollars. Okay, and then a place like Cool Stuff Inc., how much do they have it for? Let's see. Racing computers. <laughs> uh, $39. Okay, so no, it's it's about the same. Well, no, it's $10 cheaper on Cool Stuff. Is it? Okay. It's 39 on Cool Stuff and 49 on Amazon for five tribes. Well, I am sad to hear this. I mean, I still I tend to buy my stuff at the front local game store a lot more, but I, I like more options. So that's always better. I mean, yeah, it's always better. I'm surprised that they're trying to reduce it this way. I don't. I mean, if they, I, I don't know quite what it is. What's what is their goal here? Is their goal to try and support um, friendly local game stores? I mean, I'm happy we fortunately have a really good, friendly local game store comic seller here. But on the other hand, I know that we have some other local game stores that I wouldn't want to support at all. I don't want to give them my business because they honestly are not that good. Mm-hmm. And so, even if you don't have a friendly local game store, I want to be able to at least in that case support my friendly online store instead of Amazon or somebody big. You never right. have a choice. Right. So, so are we trying to cut out Amazon or are we trying to cut out cool stuff? I don't know. I don't know what it know, is that we're trying to do. Time will tell. Time will tell. Usually, it seems when they do this, it's because they're worried about the brand name being tarnished and all that, right? And I, I, that's not an issue at this point. From what exactly? <laughs> unless, unless they're going to pick up uh, things like Munchkin, they're not going to tarnish their brand. Right. <laughs> if they tarnish their brand, it's because they have poor acquisition, yeah. not because of people selling it for cheaper on Amazon. I don't think. Mm-mm. Oh well. Well, we'll see what happens. Anyway, so yeah, that's that. Did you, did you, yeah, you were saying you had another piece of I news? do, and, be, and before we jump off uh, Fantasy Flight stuff, I did find the price for, for Omen's Advice, and it, it will be $25, $24.95, which is the same as the other expansions. Okay, there you go. So the other item I have is Victory Point Games. They have a new game called Healthy Heart Hospital, which, which looks interesting. It is a cooperative play game for, um, I believe, one to five people. And in this one, you're you're trying to manage a hospital, and so you're dealing with patients and hospital reputation and things like that. 
and this is a, a large box game. It's a, uh, so I believe it, it's fifty dollars is the price for that one. So it's out already. Yes, it's available already. And who's, it, where's it available from? Victory Point Games, the guys we talked to last week or two weeks ago. Ah, I think I know them. <laughs> okay. There you go. Yeah, it's a welcome to any town USA where people grumble about the quality of their healthcare, but still show up at Healthy Heart Hospital, hoping they made a smart decision. Much has been said, and even more has been written about the previous administration's haphazard management of Healthy Heart. In an effort to save the hospital, you and your allies among its leading physicians have staged a recent clinical coup and taken over the hospital to restore its prestige. However, actually managing things from the inside is never as easy as it appears from the outside. And juggling the responsibilities at Healthy Heart Hospital can quickly turn even the noblest healer into a money-grubbing pragmatist, cynically looking for a place to hide the victims of your care. <laughs> and did you have a chance to actually look at the game? No, I haven't seen anything the co- other than the cover picture. It, it looks like Which it, is this very yellow yeah, color. It looks like an old TV show from the 70s. Is that what they're looking for? I think so. I think that's okay. the effect they went for. It looks like just the box faded or something. <laughs> And the art inside looks fine. The cards look good. Yeah, I mean they have full color art. Just the box, the box cover looks like it got faded into the sun or something. Mm-hmm. That's funny. No, you see it? Yes, yes, I do. I, and I agree, it looks faded. But it, when I saw it, it reminded me of um, I don't remember what show it is, but some old TV show. I don't know. I didn't watch old TV Maybe shows. I General guess. Hospital. Maybe that was the one. No idea. Was this? That was a soap. Anyway, so so there you go. And that was my second piece of news. Besides that, we've gotten some emails in the last few weeks. I got in a few different ones. Go ahead. One was um from BGG user Crudnik. Just uh, he was just letting me know about a game called Dungeon Saga. The I think it's Dungeon Saga: The Dwarf King's Return. And the Dwarf King's Quest, and it's a it's out now. I believe this was a Kickstarter game. Uh, with minis in it, and it has solitaire version in it, and includes some sol- some sort of solitaire AI. He said he's gotten it, he's kind of looked through it, but he hasn't tried the game out yet, so he can't give any feedback. But it does look nice. Okay. Yeah, it so, looks nice. Yeah. I mean, as, as with many minis game, I'll admit, minis looks very nice. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a question of, do you want to pay for the minis? And I tend to. <laughs> so, so thank you for that note. Um, and then I got a second email from uh, Mark Mark Perry, and I'll read this out. He says, "Hey Albert, I just listened to your most recent episode, ninety two, I think, and I really enjoyed it. Particularly the interview in beginning with VPG, and on the new Nemo game. I have never done Kickstarter before, but if if this game is affordable under fifty, I may bite the bullet and support it. I don't think it'll be under fifty. I'm probably more sixty. He, well, I mean, he he. They said at the time that they have no idea what the price is, which I found kind of funny. Yeah, well, you know, based on their other Kickstarters, I, I think it'll be more than that. I, I would be surprised, personally. Well, we'll see what yes. we'll see what happens when they figure it out. But I'm glad you enjoyed the interview. Yep, thank you. <laughs> I was glad that I was able to participate. Oh, curses on schedule. <laughs> um, and he he said he went on to mention a little more. Um, he he also talked a little bit about the rest of the episode and the countdown of the games. He, uh, Mark was wondering where the 520 games voted on, what they were, because he only saw the top 100. There is a geek list if you check out the, the top 100 list, or not a geek list, but a, a spreadsheet that you could download and has everything in it with all the raw data. So you could crunch it yourself if Which you like. That's exactly what it is that we were looking at. Yeah. And so we will, 
I will try to remember to include a link, but that is, if you go to the top 100, you'll find it or at least find it mentioned there. Um, since Kevin finished it, he posted a 101st and 102nd items talking about the sort of the results and whatnot, and people have been discussing other ways to crunch the data there. So you may want to check that out. Yeah, I think some of them were very interesting. One of them was that you add the average of all of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so there's one where you, there's one where you add up all the all the scores, find and, and rank them, and then after you've ranked them, you you look at how many votes number one hundred got, and then throw out anything that has less than that number of votes, and then rank them based on the remaining votes. So, so if a game got twenty five votes. But the the hundredth game only got ten votes. Then you only count the top ten votes for each game. And so I guess in what you end up doing is is taking the the votes of the people that liked each game most, but only if enough people liked the game. And, and it, it looked interesting. And what en- that ended up doing was raising um all the big heavier games up higher and lowering all the lighter games, which is an interesting effect. There was also the other one that uh, the way it worked, I'm trying to figure out how it was. Um, supposedly the way the BGG rank calculation is to give an additional 10 votes of 0.4 points to each, which is the average score each person gave to each game, um, which would have supposedly, I, I don't understand the math of it, but it removed any distortions from a single person voting for a game with a high score. Yeah, ba- so basically... Off the bat, every game already has like ten votes of point four. So if one person voted for it, their their number doesn't change it that much, right? So, but it supposedly moves everything towards the average sum. And I was really surprised that Friday jumped down sixteen spots because of that. And I went, "What? Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> don't do that to my Friday." And I felt the same way about Onirim with the other one. It, it knocked Onirim way down. So that's not right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, Mark had another way to look at it. Um, he says, During the podcast, Julius mentioned several times how surprised he is with the changing of the rankings. I'll read this as more more statistical than I like. The two of you then wonder if it is because of the low number, 205 people who voted. Based on that, I know, based on what I know about statistics and sampling, it's not so much that the number is low, actually 200 is a nice sample, but that the method by which the sample was gathered wasn't random. Random sample would be considered a convenient sampling. Or rather, the sample would be considered a convenient sampling. And it is possible yeah. that there is bias involved, which could account for the higher... And he goes on. I'm sorry, this is confusing if, me. If I can if I can summarize, the idea what he's saying here is that the reason why there's a certain amount of variance and scores changing is because we didn't actually take a sample of voters to be able to figure out what, what what the true rankings would be. And what he recommends doing is, let's say that we had 200 people voting, we should take a random 50 of those, or some number, I'm not sure how much he's, he's suggesting, but take a random 50 of those and figure out just for those random 50 what the rank for all the games would be. And then using those, you would be able to have something that would be um, less impacted by any individual vote because it's a random sampling. Now, I'm not quite sure I get it. I will admit I'm not statistics. I'm not versed in statistics. I'm versed in law. So I don't I don't get why that would be because it sounds like just that would randomly remove games from the running just at random. Well, and, and 
Yeah, I, I don't understand it either, what what makes it more fair necessarily. Uh, maybe it does. People have thought about this a lot. It seems like if you take a random sample, you might accidentally take 100 random people or, or 50 or whatever number that all voted like p- picking a really bad game as their favorite just by coincidence, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> and so that gets skewed to, you know, I, I my personal thought on, on how this is all, all, all the ranking was done and all the different options is, I don't think the method matters that much because we're not really trying to find out <laughs> the best game or the 17th best game or anything. We're, we're trying to find really good games. And, and, you know, generally more or less whether it's a really good game or not. To, to, and that helps you, like, find what what else you might want to play. And I, I think games. what's more important than anything else is to be able to find a more technical way to do the voting so that Kevin doesn't have to sit there manually entering in everyone's votes and figuring out what people meant by their list because people are just sending him email lists and he has to then go take all that lists in and put it somewhere else there just has to be a better mm-hmm. way i think uh, until there's somebody uh, volunteers to make some sort of website for data entry we won't be able to reduce the amount of manual effort unfortunately somebody what if we can ask because i know that when they're doing the top tens for the dice tower podcast they somehow get it to type in that you just have to type in a game that links yeah. to the board game database. Well, see, yeah, you need a, you need some sort of website for people to go to to do that themselves, right? So, because I get enter my games into my email, why not enter them into a website instead to capture that? You need somebody to host that and somebody to create that interface. Which uh-huh. it's probably not a hard thing, but you, you got to have somebody to do that. I don't have hosting space to do anything like that. I used to a long time ago when I had my own server for fun, but. You know, so, so it's just a matter of finding the, the, day, the person the to, to dedicate the time and, and uh, resources. Um, I hear that. Mm-hmm. E- either way, it, it's all interesting, and I've enjoyed seeing all the different uh, thoughts on how to gather votes and what kind of effects it has and all that. It, it is, even though a lot of it is over my head, which I'm okay with, I find it interesting. Okay, there you go. All right, so so thank you for for that note, Mark. And I don't have anything else. Nothing else? No, Let's move on to our game. All right. The game or the discussion? Let's do the game first. So today's game is Airborne Commander, which just recently became available. It was a... Re-available, I think. Re-available? I thought it was just a brand new uh, Kickstarter. Wasn't it, was it print and play oh, beforehand? It was available in a very tiny quality... Last year at Essen, I think that's what it was. I was think. it? Was that how it worked? I believe so. Yes, and so a few people had it, and it just got published. Maybe it okay. was available as a print and play. I didn't know that if it was. I don't know. I guess I'm looking at the files on BGG, and there's nothing about it posted. So maybe it was just that original pre-release. And so, who made this game? <laughs> Uh, Aaron Loster. Okay. Aaron Loster, and it is published by Stratamax Games, I believe? Yes. Okay. And so what this is, this is a, a very small card game. It is a, a deck-building game for one person. And it is strictly solitaire. So why don't we start by talking about what's in the box? Okay. Um, you get the rules and... Uh, a deck of mission cards, which 
Well, and, and so before we go to that, let's talk about the theme. In this game, you're playing uh, airborne commanders attacking into France on D-Day and, and fighting against some German resistance. Yeah, so the idea that I typically use for this because it's sort of moving is that th- this is the story, at least when I've been explaining the game, is like this, that you're the airborne people who are dropping in behind the enemy lines and your whole job was to just move through the enemy lines as much as possible and just keep moving and disrupting the German lines and disrupt, disrupting their battle so that they couldn't blitzkrieg into the allied forces. And your job was not simply to stop and engage and have a battle with everyone else. It was to keep moving and just keep sowing havoc as you're just moving through the lines until you can meet up with the main force and then just move back through with the main force and mop up. So, which, which is why you're just simply moving through in the game as opposed to stopping and fighting at any time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know a lot about D-Day in history, but if I see, if I remember right, the, the 101st Airborne, which is who you're playing, had to, to land and, and capture a couple key cities or something like that and control it to, to make it harder for, for the Germans to then later on mount an offensive. But, something yeah. like that. But both, both are probably, we're both probably somewhat right. <laughs> at least the idea, at least the idea for the game. I mean, I'm not really talking about history. I'm talking just about okay. how I understand how the game works is that you're just, you, cause yes, yes. the whole time you never actually stop. You always keep moving through the lines. Even if you didn't manage to defeat something, you just keep moving through the lines. Yes, that's true. Okay. So, so now we've talked about what the, the object of the game and the theme a little bit. What do you get in this game? A bunch of cards, basically. Right, so you have the mission decks, and so the mission decks come with the axis units, the defenses, the locations, and the objectives. You also have the allied deck, which includes your starting units, which is a couple basic units, and also it's going to come with units that you'll be able to take reinforcements over in the course of the game, because as with a normal deck building game, many of your units will let you have credits in order to buy more units to put into your deck, and so those will be coming out of the allied deck. Um, your personal player deck will also be formed of a certain amount of cards from the allied deck, whatever it is that you started with or you've managed to purchase throughout the game. There's also one more deck, which are the disorganized cards. The disorganized cards are sort of like your damage and mage knight or something else like that. These are cards that have no purpose. But if at any point in time you'll take a disorganized card, it goes into your deck, and when you draw it later, so it does nothing but slow you down. Um, and the disorganized cards are actually one of the various ways to lose the game. If ever you would draw the last disorganized card, uh, the game is immediately over and you've lost the game. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and so that that's everything you get in the game. Then I guess the next thing we want to talk about is how to play the game or how to set it up. All right. Well, when you set up the game, so you're going to start with a certain amount of units. Now, then each of the units has a um, an attack. An attack can come in one of two types. When you're talking about for your your units, an attack can come in one of two types. It can either be a small arms attack or a heavy arms attack. Small arms attack are used against other infantry. So a small arms of one will be able to be used a small arms of one will be able to be to to cause damage on another axis infantry. It then has a defense, which is going to be a number and a helmet. 
each time, whenever you pair off a unit versus a unit, you'll compare the attack values and the defense values. If either of the attacks exceed the defense value of the unit that is against it, the unit that was defending will die. So if, let's say, you went up with a one attack, one defense unit against a two attack, two defense axis unit, you wouldn't be able to kill it, and it would be able to kill your unit because it was doing two attack to your two defense, and you were only doing one attack to its two defense. Um, and even if you would have done two, uh, two attack to its two defense, you actually have to exceed the defense in order to be able to kill it. So those are the two principal things that you'll see on the side. Some of the units are going to be armored, and you can tell in the corner whether it's going to be armored or infantry. If it's armored, small arms doesn't work. You'll have to use the heavy arms in order to be able to take it out, which looks sort of like a, a missile icon, um, the anti-armor units. I'm not quite sure what that's supposed to look like. Is that a mortar or something else? An artillery, maybe? And I'll tell you, I'm not quite sure what the icon is, but it looks very different than the small arms because the small arms is a little um, crosshairs and the other ones looks like a mortar or a missile. I'm not quite sure what it's supposed to be. Um, so that's what the that's what the units look like. And the, the basic for the units looks the same whether you're on the axis, the allied. Um, but the allied also will have a cost in the corner, which is what the, the parachute man is. And we'll get back to the cost in a second. Many of the allies also have a unique ability, a support ability is what it's called. Um, and so the support abilities can range from being able to increase the small arms of uh, one of your other units or being able to put down suppression fire, which means that a unit, an Axis unit, is going to not be able to fire back because it's being suppressed. So they have all sorts of different ones, and so there's a number of different abilities that are in the game. One of the important abilities is uh, um, the ability the to pathfinder. The path, well, the ability to purchase other cards. That's right. Yep, that's where your currency comes from, in the cards that have that at the bottom. And there's one that's the pathfinder that allows you to purchase two cards. And if you don't have a pathfinder, you may not purchase two cards in one turn. Um. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the layout of the unit cards. The Axis cards also have, and so and the Axis cards also have a couple different other types. There's another one which is a static defense. So there's two types of static defense. There's the um, armored static defense, and there's the regular static defense. And so the only difference is whether or not you need to use uh, heavy fire in order to take it out, anti-armor fire in order to be able to take out the static defense. Um, so the static defenses are always three threes. In order to be able to take them out, if you don't take them out, though, unlike with a regular unit, regular units, because you're marching through the lines, they'll just simply move on and get out of the way. But with static defenses, if you don't take out a static defense, it moves over into a stack in the fourth column. And so each time, you, if you don't take it out, you might start building up more and more static defenses. If you ever finish a turn and there are four static defenses in a pile on the fourth column, you automatically lose the game. Uh-huh. And that's another way of losing the game. Let, let's step back real quick and explain how the how the game works because uh, you, you're talking about the four columns and we haven't explained them at all yet. All right. Okay. So, so when you start the game, you've got the the deck, the mission deck you've set up. You've got your draw deck of eleven cards. You start with eight units plus 
three, uh, what are they called again? The red cards. Uh, d- disorganized cards. Disorganized. Thank you. <laughs> um, you start with that, and then you also shuffle the the unit, the the support cards, I guess. The the rest of your army, and you're gonna build a draw deck from that for cards that you could buy. Uh, you will flip four of those over, so you have four to choose from each turn to buy. And um, and then once you're ready to play, you draw five cards. And, well, first you, you take from the mission deck, you draw four cards, one at a time, and you lay them out into four columns. If you ever draw two objective cards or two terrain cards, you set extra to the side. You can only ever have one terrain or one objective on any given turn. You set those to the side and you draw some more to fill up the, the four slots. Once you've done that, you draw five cards for, into your hand, and then you go ahead and start playing cards out. You could play cards to line them up against the units that are attacking you or against any um, defenses that are there, any of the static defenses or the objectives. and Or you could play the support cards to the bottom. When, you, when you're attacking against, when you're fighting against the other units, you could use any unit to, to fight in against any of the Axis units. For, so for example, you could have an infantry unit up against a tank or against another infantry unit or against a static defense or an objective. However, keep in mind that infantry cannot do damage to uh, uh, to a tank, right? They so they won't actually do anything, but the tank will get a chance to shoot back. Um, so you'll set up all your cards out that you're going to use that turn. Any cards you don't want to use, plus any disorganized cards you keep in your hand. Um, at the end of the turn, the you will discard the disorganized. Any other cards you didn't use, you get to keep for the next turn, which is which is a nice. Uh, change to the typical deck building game i really like that mm-hmm. yeah i agree being able mm-hmm. to keep it makes a big part of the strategy change mm-hmm. so now now you've played all the cards that's at the table and now you, you actually have the units fight each other each of your units that's facing against another unit will then uh attack the enemy unit if it does enough damage it kills it but before you remove the dead units those enemies will get to shoot also and if they do enough damage, they'll kill your units. Anything of yours that gets killed is taken out of the game. You've lost that card. Um, any enemy units that you destroyed, you collect as victory points. And that, that includes both the, the units, the static defenses, and the objective cards. The um, Once you've done that... You'll collect all your cards that you played, discard that you haven't lost. You discard them. Well, you actually don't do that yet, right? You you will collect all the cards. Any enemies that uh, you did not destroy, that are either terrain objectives or units, not the side defenses, will get discarded. Um, and by discarded, you mean removed from the game? Um, you put them in a di- in a discard pile because you could potentially have to draw some of those again later, right? If the game ends because you run out of cards from the uh, resupply deck, and you, or I'm sorry, because you run out from the mission deck, you may have to shuffle in your discard pile and add a couple for that last round. So, but that's nitpicking, there isn't it? Um, what was I saying? So you will discard them out of the game, and you'll keep the stack defenses. You also have the opportunity to buy cards. Any cards you have in your hand that have a purchase ability at the bottom or any cards that you played to your support area that had purchase ability and you use for that purchase ability. 
You you can add up all those points and then buy a single card from the four that you have available to purchase. Or, or as Julia said, if you have one of the Pathfinder cards played or even two, you could buy extra cards that round. Um, so now you, you've done all your fighting, you've done all your purchasing, you got rid of all the enemy units that are done for that round. Discard all the cards you've played plus any um, <sighs> disruption cards in your hand. If in the the purchase pile that you have the four cards available to purchase, you discard from there down to two, and then you refill it with two more. So each round, you're going to get two new cards. Potentially, you could get more than two new cards, as opposed to if you manage to buy three in a turn with the Pathfinders. But that, I haven't well, done that. Well, the Pathfinders, you can't do that with the Pathfinders, so you can only ever buy two. Well, if you play a second Pathfinder... Then you get four and four towards... That's not what I read. What I read was that you get... Two and a two and a four. A two, a four, and a oh, two. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and we'll get to that later because, yeah, these rules are not that clear. <laughs> but um, but so so now you've, you've done all your cleanup. You've discarded cards. You've refilled that purchase pile. You're ready for the next round. You're going to draw from the mission deck to, to fill up the four slots again. And you're going to draw five cards into your hand. If your draw pile is empty, you'll show for your discard. And and that's basically how the game works. And you'll keep playing that way until either your mission deck or your um what's what's the green the recruitment deck, I guess? Until one of those runs out. And at that point the game ends and you will total up your victory points, and if you have it I think it's like at least four, it's considered a minor victory. That sounds about right. Something like that. Mm-hmm. So, so that's how the game works. It's very, it's very simple to play. It's very straightforward. It plays pretty quick. Um, and when you're playing, you definitely get a lot of choices in the game. Um, some interesting choices, I think, too. For example, when you're getting ready to, to fight against units that are out there, you know, depending on the strength of the opposing units, you, you're probably going to lose some of yours. And you may or may not want to lose some of your units. You may have some really cheap. Uh, dispensable units that you don't care about and you don't mind if they die. You may only have a couple of valuable units. And and you know what I forgot to mention is for any any enemy unit that you didn't oppose, specifically the armored or infantry units, if they remain unopposed and their attack, I guess you could say, got through to you, then for each of those, you'll take one of those disruption cards into your discard pile. So now you have more of these dead cards sitting in your deck, which means going forward, you're going to you're going to have more turns with fewer options. Okay, I found the, the rules, and in fact, if you have two Pathfinders, you can either do a 4 and 2 and 2, or 4 and 4, or 2 and 2 and 2 and 2. Ah, okay, so you have you have a choice. You could either buy three units or two units or something like that. Or no, not 4 and 2 and 2, or 4 and 4, not 2 and 2 and 2 and 2 and 2. You can buy two, yes. with two pathfinders. You can buy three or two units. No, with with three or pathfinders. No, yeah, with two pathfinders, you could buy three or two. Yes, that's what I was saying. I was. Yes, we agree. Okay. <laughs> well, no, we don't agree. I was wrong. I thought you could only ever buy two, even if uh, you had two okay. pathfinders. Okay. I was wrong. So, yeah. Um. So yeah. So so you do have interesting choices in this, right? You get interesting choices when you're playing cards. You're when you're buying cards, you have some choices about which cards to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're playing cards, you know, do you want to spend some of your cards to for the for their purchase ability to buy cards, 
or do you want to use them to to fight or do you want to hang on to them for a later round that's another interesting choice and if you're not using them to fight you may end up taking damage or taking disorganized because you're not dealing with it yet. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes that's not <laughs> so so i find it a very interesting game I, I do and i've enjoyed playing it I do too. I also find it very, very interesting. I think that this is a this is a good deck builder with a lot of good decisions involved about what strategy is that you want to pursue and and which cards you want to pursue. Because I know that because as you're going through the recruiting deck, each turn you have to discard two from the recruiting deck. So you're constantly being left, well, which of these two do I really want? And each time you have to keep making that decision again, quite often, because you're like, wait, now I want that one, and this one's so cool, and then I want that one. But what's my chances with my deck? Of actually being able to go grab that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it ends up being really fun. And, you know, one other thing we haven't mentioned is the art in the game is really nice. It's very well done. Um, every The art is... Go ahead. I would say every type of card has different art. So it, there, there's some cards, you might have three or four of them in the deck. Those, those three or four will all be the same, but each individual type of unit will have different and distinct art. And just to describe the type of art, it's this watercolor art um, that looks like a watercolor painting, which looks pretty cool. It does. Now, is it watercolor? I think it might be like, I, mean, I don't know, art, but it seems almost like an oil texture to it. The colors are definitely, you know, when I see it, I say, oh, that's a watercolor. But when you start looking closer, it looks like an, like a different texture. I don't know. I, Whatever I don't know it is, they, it's nice. I don't nice. know if they describe what it's supposed to be, but I do, I do like it. It's a, um, It's not realistic at all. It doesn't look like a realistic piece of art. It looks like it looks like an art piece of art. It looks like a, a painting mm-hmm. or something like you'd see there, which gives it a, a nice feel because you know it's not a super realistic yeah. game as with many other things. It's not intending to be, but it's it's, it's not cartoony to be sort yeah. of perspective. Yeah, and it's not cartoony at all. It, it the art is I'd say it's more of a serious style, if anything. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Um. So the one thing I like about the game is the rule book. I found the rulebook very frustrating to 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 figure out. Well, I think that potentially one of the issues is because some of the terms are not clear. Um, I know that some of the cards say that it's a minus one for reinforcements or only infantry reinforcements, but the term reinforcements is never used in the mm-hmm. rules. That, that, just, that's just the one example. that got me the most. <laughs> right. And what it means by reinforcements is when you're buying new cards. Because at the end of your turn, you can spend credits, whatever you want to call the credits, par- parachute points, I don't know what you want to call it. I guess. <laughs> but you, can s- you can spend parachute points to buy new cards. And that's what's called reinforcements. And it's just a matter that the, the language was not made completely clear between the rules and the cards. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, the, the rule book never at all has the word reinforcement. And I've gone through it three or four times trying to figure out what reinforcement went meant and it's it's not in the rules it's not in the pictures in the rule book it's nowhere (laughs) and it took me about six games i think before i figured out what it meant six games to figure what it meant Mm -hmm. i I, I mean i just went for the first one i went and asked the question on bgg is what happened i I should have done that (laughs) it saved me a lot of (laughs) aggravation there you go Um, but yeah i mean i just went and immediately asked on bgg like what does this reinforcements mean apparently it's a little bit of a leftover language from the old version that's what it seems like which is why I thought that there's an old print and play that came out and just some of the language didn't get updated. Mm, maybe the print and play was available during the Kickstarter. Uh, I don't that know. Could be. 
or, well, or maybe it was from the the version that, that came out in Essen. I don't but, yeah. know, but I think that's. I, I mean, I think that reinforcements really. I think that's the only issue that I really came up against. Um, I know I had another issue somewhere with the rule book. I was thinking about a minute ago, and I've forgotten now. That it, it was in there, but I found it a little hard to find. Um. I know I posted some questions. I could probably go back and look through and see which questions I had. But, oh, I think it was a question about how it works with the uh, um, stacked up um, terrain, the stacked up uh, static defenses, that in order to be able to get an objective, you have to have a unit against each of the other cards, opposing each of the other cards or suppressing each of the other cards. And so does that mean you have to suppress, you have to be, um, opposing each of the individual um, static defenses or just have one for that whole pile? And so the answer is you have to have one for each. Oh, I've been playing it wrong then. I assume since they're in a pile, I just treated them as one. Uh, no, I think that you have to have one for each. Uh, I need to go back and play. <laughs> you know, another thing I had trouble with in the rule book was, and it wasn't really clear, was... At least not at first was where the um the parachute points were. I thought that every card gave you parachute points based on the cost. Oh no! And and I played it the first couple games really easy. Let me tell you. <laughs> I think it says I think it says that in the in the corner. It in the rules. I could not find yeah, a that's place. That's the recruit points. That's a, it's under support, and it's under one of the support things. Recruit. This is the amount of points that the card may be used to recruit a new card from the drop zone. Yeah, but. It, well, maybe maybe I just misread it, but I think in the in the picture the the diagram of the card where it shows you the card and it has you know all the different things pointed out. It says these are recruit points and it points to the parachute on the left side. The cost it says this is a recruit cost, and then later on it says use your recruit points, but it doesn't clearly say what what's a recruit point. I couldn't find that. Well, easily. the recruit the recruit points are the ones in brown on the bottom of the yeah, card. Yeah, and I figured out eventually, but again, I find that hard. I mean, the yeah. rulebook could be better written. That's that's really what it is. It's. It could be better. It, it, it may or may not be in there, and it probably isn't. I just missed it, but it wasn't. It that could be clear. better. I mean, I don't. It wasn't that clear, but I don't think. I don't think it's. Uh, it's grossly so. It could be better done, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's grossly so. But, and it's a simple enough game that you know, after a few games, you figured it out. So it doesn't matter. Now you said you, you've been beating the game pretty easily so far. Well, one of the things I just found, by the way, that uh, when I'm playing the game, the the rules don't say when you. When an allied unit is killed or when an Axis unit is not defeated. So then both of those go to different places. If an allied unit survives, it goes to your discard pile. If it's killed, it's removed. Um, and with an allied unit, if you defeat it, it goes to your score pile. And if you don't defeat it, it's removed. And so once again, yeah, like you said, the removed could potentially come back. But I found that for me, I found it easy. The box comes with the divider for the two sides. I found it easy to set the box next to the battleground. If something gets removed, either an allied unit is killed or an Axis unit is not defeated, put it in the box. Um, just because for me, that gave it a nice place to specifically show where removed for what, where removed goes. And then anything out of there is stuff that scores points or that I get to continue using. Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah, I've been doing the same thing. I've been throwing them in the box. And it yeah. works right because then when you're done playing, hey, you put the game away. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Theoretically, you just have to put back everything else. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I've been, I mean, when I originally got the game, I played the first two games or so. Um, 
the Axis deck comes numbered. So one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, and I found it curious that it's, you actually have to reverse the cards from when you get them out of the box, which was strange for me. Yeah. I, no, I don't think I've noticed that. My, my thing is out of habit, I pulled the cards out and shuffled them and then remembered and then do- that they said just play them in order the first couple times. Right. <laughs> so I, I, the first two times, I, I, no, actually, I think only the first one time I played it in order. Um, but then after that, I think I, I reset the order when I showed it to a friend also. Um, but then after that, I just didn't feel like resetting the whole order to try and do in that specific order because that just takes too much time. Yeah, it's it's a bit tedious. I don't have time. Mm. I don't want to go reorder the whole deck. I mean, I understand what they were doing to try and make it even about when cards come out and things like that. I just don't have time. So I'm, mostly I don't play with it in that order. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. It wasn't, one of the benefits of having that order is that it will make the game a little more fair. If you just shuffle them up, you could uh, end up getting games that are unwinnable. Uh, for example, I had one game where I had four uh, armored static defenses and only had the opportunity to purchase one anti anti tank weapon, whatever it was. So that I I just could not beat it. it. It was impossible. That has not happened to me yet. <laughs> so, so. But no, I mean, mm-hmm. I've been playing the the last games here, so I've played now a, a three or four games now. In terms of scoring, if you get 11 points, you have to then reduce all your points by each disorganized card. So each disorganized card counts for one against you. But if you get 12, your disorganized cards do not count against you. I don't know why they set it up that way, because it's really impossible to get 11 points. But once you get 12, you're at this magic number, so you don't lose points. I don't know why they did that. (laughs) I didn't realize that. I I had just been... Counting them, and I did get to twelve the, the last time I played. I think actually it was at fourteen and a half minus the disorganized cards, and then, and then one. No, you don't. You, I didn't if know. If you get twelve, you get a medal <laughs> of honor, and you don't take away disorganization. I don't actually like that because I don't get why you should do that. Because I've been scoring above twelve very frequently now, because. I mean, almost with, with many deck builders, you have to understand for the beginning of the game, you have to focus on buying cards. And then at one point in time, you have to make a switch to actually using the cards that you bought. So if you focus on the beginning of the game on ensuring that you're getting cards or holding on to cards in your hand and not playing them so that you can make the big purchases for the bigger cards and be able to get those into your deck. And so for the beginning of the game, you're just sort of struggling. You're just barely keeping on and just barely making sure that you you don't get too much and you'll take a couple disorganized in order to hold on to the cards in your hand that have the big recruits to get the bigger cards out of the deck. And you focus on that in the beginning of the game. And then at one point in time, you make the switch over to stopping focusing on the recruit and start focusing on taking out stuff. And I mean, there's a trick to, to knowing where it is when you should do that. And because it's a randomized deck, it's not always clear when to do that or if you can do that. But I'm finding it more and more easy to be able to just do that and play through it. That doesn't necessarily mean it's not fun. I'm just finding it mm-hmm. more easy to do. Yeah, and the nice thing is it's easy to adjust the difficulty. Just start with more disorganized cards in your deck. See, that would probably be an issue because the la- every game I've played so far, I am almost intentionally stopping before I have with the last disorganized and then you know this line you may not cross i think i stop usually when i have two just in case i have to take one due to a bad draw um but if i I will i will be just fine taking the disorganized for a certain amount of time just because i'm okay with it 
Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, I do want to try playing with an extra tickets organized card at some point. Maybe I will try that yeah. next and see how much harder that makes it. Because currently, it's not it's not being very hard to get to twelve for me right now. I know I originally said that it's a hard game, but once I think I figured it out, it's not that hard mm-hmm. so far. Yep. Now the game is only available through Stratomax directly from their website. You could go there at stratomaxgames.com, and it is twenty five dollars plus shipping. Um, and what else? I mean, th- I think I think we've covered the game pretty well. It's it's not a complicated so. game. It's it's easy. It's fun. Yeah, I see. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though it's even though it's not so hard, maybe I'll try with more of the the um, disorganized cards in the beginning. But I'm still finding a lot of fun. I actually do enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's a good game. I agree. And I was showing just going to look some other people uh, locally here, and they also all enjoy it. So yeah, thumbs up. Good cool. game. Cool. All right, and that's the end of the segment. And now we're talking about, well, what are we talking about now? All right, so uh, we're going to be talking about something that I don't think we've ever talked about before here. Um we're starting a segment. What's missing in solo gaming? Um, just because you know, both Albert and I, you know, solo gaming isn't the only thing we do for entertainment. I think is that not correct for you, Albert? Also, yeah, that's right. I also do multiplayer gaming, <laughs> <laughs> and I go see Star Wars every time it comes out. <laughs> you go see Star Wars, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, also the video games and books and things like that. Yeah. And That's you know, right. just in comparison to solo gaming versus multiplayer gaming or solo gaming versus other media outlets and things to do, and what sort of things do we think that solo gaming is missing that we think perhaps it can learn from other things and how to do better? Mm-hmm. And you know, one that I think that just keeps coming up for me is, I don't know, what do you have a favorite video game of all time or favorite video game series? I haven't been playing too many like new video games lately. The stuff I play them is uh, well, Star Realms, <laughs> and lately I've been playing Rayman a lot. Actually, there's a new Rayman I've been playing. I wouldn't even say I played too many uh, recent video games either, um, but I used to play more. And I think that my favorite video game series was the Final Fantasy games. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that one of my favorite video games of all time would be uh, Chrono Trigger. And one of those reasons is because I liked the tactical style of it, of both of those games and the decisions that went into it. Um, but in both of those aspects, there's a very good story that goes through the whole thing, a really good narrative that moves on through it. And unlike with the board game, that a board game you can play multiple times and over and over again. But with these video games, there's something really compelling you to keep moving through it because there's this story, there's this narrative, and you really feel into it and involved and interested in the outcome of the characters and what's going on. But with a board game, you don't really get all of that. I mean, really anything. I mean, I'm thinking of a couple of things. For example, you know, Friday or Airborne Commander. There's no narrative going on here. There's no story being told unless you just sort of make it up by yourself. And I mean, I used to do, I don't do it so much anymore, but I used to try and select out stories that people posted on solitaire games on your table and read out those stories because I really liked seeing 
people pull narrative from their game and figure out what narrative the game is telling them and how it is that the game is really telling a story. But you don't really get a story out of many of these things. I mean, there are a couple games that, that are easier to pull stories out of, which should be, should receive praise for them. So, I mean, one, one example for them, I'm, I'm talking currently about things that are really released right now. Um, I'm not talking about things like the seventh continent, but for things that are released right now, uh, Robinson Crusoe, for example, is a game that tells a story. You can look back at it afterwards and you know what was happening. You can tell the sort of story as it was telling, as it was going along about that everyone got shipwrecked or that they were on this island, there was a cult or that there was a dark fog and then you know, the the currents that come into the play in the game, how you may have seen a wild animal and you chose to interact with it or not, and that wild animal came up afterwards, and you can see it. And almost if you look at your deck, really, sometimes you can look back at your deck and you can see all the sort of things that you were involved in and you interacted with. And so that's one game that really can tell a story. But, for example, let's talk about, you know... um um not Z game, but, uh, zombie game. We just talked about it last episode. <laughs> Dawn of the Zeds. Dawn of the Zeds, thank you. The Dawn of the Zeds game. That's a game that doesn't, even though there's a lot of narrative, a lot of fluff text in there about, you know, this game had this, the, you know, the, the news reporters were involved and they ran in. A narrative doesn't really come just from the fact that, oh, there is a news reporter and they're involved in the game. You don't really feel a sense of narrative to the game or what's going on. It feels more just like, you know, one of these Warcraft-type games. Well, you know, that game actually, when I was talking to to Alan about it, he pointed out how the that game has a deck of cards that you play. And when you start, there's there's three types of cards. And first you lay the... The shuffle the the third part, put it down. Shuffle the second part, put it on top, and then shuffle the first part, and put it on top. So as you play through the cards, they're they've been set up such that the tension builds up through each section and changes and shifts. So it it is sort of telling the story through the cards in that sense. Well, I mean, there's tension, and you need tension to make a good mm-hmm. solo game. There's some there's some games that really lose on the tension. But I'm not focusing on the tension here. I'm not focusing on the idea that you start a game at medium, at easy, and then it goes to medium, and then it goes to hard as your abilities become more and more refined or as the tension grows more and more. Mm. I'm not talking about the tension. I'm talking about is there a story? After I, t- mm. after I finish the game, can I look back and say, wow, those characters did something. Those characters meant something. Is it comparable to a story that I get out of, even a very basic story that I get out of a small piece of fiction or a very basic story that I get out of, out of a Final Fantasy game? Is there a story mm-hmm. that happened? Even if I have to go to a certain degree and make it up, is there an actual story that happened or was it just wave after wave of zombies or wave after wave of spaceships or wave after wave of getting resources is it always just going to be wave after wave after wave or is there an actual story that'll be involved so now i wonder if these uh these cards in dawn of the zeds have flavor text on them so that as you're playing through the deck it tells the story in the flavor text that may happen though that must be hard to do in a game where you don't know what order the different paragraphs are going to be in right well i think that there's i mean (laughs) that makes it tough i i was 
expecting Mistfall, and I hate to continue rag on Mistfall, but I was expecting Mistfall to try and do it a little bit better because I know that I read from Mistfall in advance some of their stories of some of their characters. Before the game finished on Kickstarter, they were starting to release stories about the bad guys and stories about the good guys and what's going on. And those were it were well-developed stories about what's happening, but when you start reading down to it, each one of them is really, there's a good guy, <laughs> there's a bad guy transformed by the mist, the bad guy therefore wants to go crazy and cause damage, and the good guys have to go fight them. Mm-hmm. Somewhere along the ways, it just started being monotonous and repetitive instead of being interesting. I, I'll compare it back to Robinson Crusoe, where there's a number of different stories. The cult story tied into the mechanics. It tied into the idea that, oh, I have to go get the cult. I have to go pull together all the totems. I have to avoid the fog that's coming in and littering the land. I had to go avoid the creature that was now stalking me in the night because I chose not to go out and hunt it on my first turn. All of those things, that story really got involved in my game and really made me feel the narrative. Whereas with all the Mistfall, you may have written at least a lot of pages of text of your story, but in the end, each one of those stories was Mistfall powered up bad guy, good guys went and killed bad guy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Where'd the narrative go? That's nothing but... I could have left it out, and I really wouldn't have changed much. Is it because the gameplay was very repetitive in that? Wherein, as in a Robinson Crusoe, there's different types of things going on that are entirely different? It could be. It could be. I wonder. Now, are you familiar with the idea of the, the five-act structure, three-act structure, and like in plays and stories? I am, but why don't you tell our listeners about it? Okay. So, so basically, the idea is... Every story is supposed to go through through five different parts. There, there's a prologue, basically just setting up the story. Then there is some sort of conflict that happens, um, where basically you know everything is going smooth, and all of a sudden something changed, and now now there's a conflict, and now the action starts to rise, which is the third part. There's a rising action that leads to a climax, where all of a sudden you know the good guy and the bad guy are facing off. Um, then the the fourth part would be the falling action which is sort of the concluding of the fight, and then finally uh, the announcement or sort of the closing of the story. Isn't it Denuma? I don't know. <laughs> uh, Denuma. The Denuma. And sometimes it's also called a three-act structure, which is basically the same structure. They just don't go into as much detail. There, there's the, the beginning, the, the climax, and then the falling action and closing of a story. And every story is going to go through that. And... You know, I think most games, unless they're abstract, have this in them. Just they, they have very, very little. A lot of them have very little. A lot of it will just be in the flavor text on the back of the box, and that's your entire story right there. It sets up your prologue, and and the game is a conflict. And then the the denouement, denouement is implied in the game, but it doesn't really happen. Now, now even though they say every story has this, not every story you read will you be able to point out those five things because they aren't necessarily always in there, I think. I think in some cases, maybe, you know, if, if the person's a clever writer and wants to try something funny, they might put the the climax at the beginning and then do the prologue after, you know, and change the, the order of the story. Um, But you will generally see that in every story. Can you do that in a game? I mean, I think you can. 
you just have to make it so that it's actually involved. You know, a good example for something that could be done is even if you have a set of cards, although, you know, you may start seeing some of these cards more repetitively. And so it just becomes a certain amount of times that you played it. But so, for example, let's talk about Dawn of the Zets. If there would be a small amount of story for each one of them that were involved. So say, um, you know, you take a random bit of plot twist and I, I mean, there already is unfortunately plot twist in the Dawn of the Zeds game, but a certain amount of plot point, um, involved and shuffle into the various points and times of the deck. So suddenly you're now having to deal with a giant Zed monster who's coming out to try and try and take over a certain character and a certain character is now like the savior. And, you know, all of these things are now new story aspects that come into the game. And then through those stories, the cards will weave a story together. And that's in addition to the whole zombie zombie siege that's going on all throughout the game. But in addition to creating tension, you now are adding in elements that will allow you to create a story and say, oh, these guys aren't just simply fighting for their lives. They are trying to create the cure before this zombie guy who controls all the zombies can come in and take the cure away from them. Or they're involved in a life-threatening situation with the president, and they're trying to ensure that the president remains safe, even though you know all the zombies are somewhere aware that there's someone really important there, something like that. These sort of cards could create story just by simply slotting in to exactly those those three or those five segments of it and add in some element of story to the game that it can go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had asked uh, Alan Emmerich about this, and um, in an email, and he 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 replied, and he he made a couple of good points that you got to keep in mind that a game is really the goal is to to play the game right and to win, which is very different from a story, which is it's very linear and you don't have any decision points in a story. You read through from beginning to end, and that's it. In a game, the goal of winning may go counter to any any story you're trying to tell. And I think there are some games where it may maybe it just doesn't work. Maybe you can't really tell. A good story. You still have different points that, when you look back, are interesting and made an interesting story. But, but maybe that's just certain types of games that that works with. I don't know. Something. I mean, about. I think it's going to ch- change based upon the game. So yeah. Certain games are, are going to be harder to do. So, for example, Airborne Commander. The game becomes lighter and becomes more basic each time because each time you're doing the same thing. You're running through the lines trying to cause havoc. Or, for example, Deep Space D6. You can sort of change over things by having different boss fights get involved, but it's harder to really make a full story and have it be involved just because those are lighter games. But once you start mm-hmm. moving into the heavier games, which is why I mentioned things like, um, which is why I mentioned things like Robinson Crusoe. Once you start moving into the heavier things, those give you more opportunities to take more more leeway with adding in new mechanics that will tie into stories. So I know that I've played some custom Mage Knight campaigns, for example, like the Ring of Fire one, where the idea was was there was now um, dragons pillaging all through the land, and there's one red mage in the tower in the city who continues to get more powerful. And the longer you wait, you have to go up there and you can either spend time taking out the dragons, or the longer you wait, the more time you have to go 
and take out her before she can bring her retainers into her. So that whole time, I feel like I'm involved in that story. Now that that story might be repetitive, but you could slot in another story on top of it. I'm sure that other people, with all of the elements that are involved in Mage Knight, there's enough meat and mechanics involved that you can slot in more skeletons to it. It it becomes a question of the heavier games. I feel like you can do this. A lot of times I see these heavier games falling short of being able to actually do that well. Mm-hmm. Um, what was he saying? Um, I was thinking of... Gosh, I totally lost my train of thought. The... Well, here's one thing I was wondering. Can... Um, oh, I don't know. In, in some cases, I've put stories into my, the game myself, right? Where where the game maybe doesn't lack story, or or maybe I want to add more story to it. What I'm thinking specifically is in Hostage Negotiator, when I've played... You know, it's a silly thing, but some of my meeples came damaged. So one of my meeples sort of wobbly. I, I decided that he's handicapped, and he's a handicapped hostage. And when I'm playing with him, you know, some games I want to save him, and, and I spend more fo- effort trying to get this hostage saved. And if he doesn't get saved, it's an issue, and maybe he decides he wants to be saved or not. And I add a story to the game myself that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually Hostage Negotiator is a good example of one that has the cards in place to try and make a better story because yes. I, I think that although the story is repetitive, but I think the fact that you have all of the different um, hostage takers and their story behind them and what their demands would be and how does that they expect to come out and your methods of going through it with them, I think all of those really can help to evoke a story because those things do differ and because there's a lot of story built up behind it. And each of those stories is unique. Each of those stories is different as opposed to something like Mistfall. You know, one of the characters in the game, he he just wants to get medical treatment for his son. The whole time I'm playing there, I'm thinking, listen, guy, we got things like, you know, we got Medicare. We got ways of doing that's the right way. This is not the right way of doing it. The whole time I'm thinking about the game and I'm seeing those stories. I mean, I don't, don't necessarily continue to see it because I've now played that story a couple of times. But when I played the game for the first time, I saw that story play out. I saw it come through in the cards and in everything that's going on, which I was going yep. for some other games. Yep, and that game, because the theme is just very, very well put into the game in that case. Mm-hmm. Now, how about how about legacy games? They, they tell story over time, over many games. And, and if, as a matter of fact, like if you look at Pandemic Legacy, it's really popular now. Each individual game, I guess, is is a, a story of an outbreak happening and you fighting it. But then you're playing this game over and over, which doesn't really make sense if you think about it. You know, what is there an outbreak happening every single month well, there, for I a mean, year? The, the idea and of the game, game is that, yes, there is, is that this was the worst year and that the pandemic continued to outbreak. <laughs> that is, that y- is y- yes, but... but you know, and, and I understand that, but I'm saying you, you play the game and you cure it and you defeat all the diseases, and now next month it comes out again. And in, in a way, it doesn't make sense. Uh-huh. Um, but they build a story around it by having the game change from the results of each experience. Well, I mean, let me ask you have you played Pandemic Legacy yet? I have not. Neither have I. So I find it hard for us to discuss the game when we haven't played it yet. Oh, I, I feel 100% qualified. Oh, do you? <laughs> I've seen Pandemic. But you don't know anything about the story and legacy. <laughs> I do. I do not. But you know, again, the, to me, the idea of playing a board game and 
then the result of that changes the next time you play the board game. Does does that seem like a truly continuous story? Are you saying you know, it the, doesn't the, or it does? It does not. I mean, I, I guess you I would find it hard to believe that there's a monthly outbreak, even if that's what the story yet. is. No. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I hate to bring spoilers in, but I've, then don't. I've played Seafall. <laughs> I've played Seafall, and I can tell you that with that one, the repetition of what's going on does build an overarching story, and you're not going to have that issue. Seafall okay. is... Ah, oh, God. How much can I talk about Seafall? Seafall is nope. not a solo game. <laughs> Okay, well, so so that's one way to introduce stories. This is a is a legacy type game, right? Or basically, where the story evolves over multiple. Players. Well, I think that also you have a number of experience games that don't even involve a mul- multiple games. So, for example, you have um, Time Stories is one of the most popular ones. I think probably most people have mm. heard of, where you are a set of characters in really like full color art, um, going through the game trying to figure out the the solution to the puzzle. But to a certain degree, I mean, those are very similar to, well, I mean, here's a game that has story, a choose-your-own-adventure game. There's a lot of story in that, and or mm-hmm. a choose-your-own-adventure book. It's almost like a game. It's a lot more like a story than a game. <laughs> it's a lot more like a story. I think almost Time Stories is a lot more like a story than a game. Have you played uh, uh, Arabian Nights? Or I have not played Arabian Nights. I've played Agents of Smash. Oh, okay. No, no, my understanding is those are very similar. Those give you a, a story when you play. Those do give you a story when you play. Um, it was a while ago, but yes, that would be another good example of one that does give you a story when you play. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Though, you know, going back to the, the five act structure, it doesn't give you a story in that sense of a five act structure. It gives you a story of a, a person's life, whether or not it's dramatic, <laughs> you know, with a climax. I mean, it sounds, it, when I'm playing Ages of Smirsh, I get more the feeling of like I'm playing through a season. Of a cheap spy TV show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's really what it feels to me like. And that's okay. That's okay, because that, that's what it feels like, and it's fine. Yep. And there's another similar game, um, Barbarian Prince. Have you ever played that? That's available as a print-and-play now. Uh, it was too much involved for me to want to print-and-play. Okay. You know, you don't have to print that much. I would suggest just printing out the map and then using your, your laptop to read the chapters online and that works pretty well it's it's a it's a fun game it's dumb <laughs> in a way you get stories out of it but the you go like for example i had a game where i go and i cross the river and i fought some wolves and i fought some treasure and then i traveled a little more and i bumped into a band of works and they killed me and i died just all Oops. of a sudden just out of the blue just a couple of bad rolls in the game was suddenly over when i was doing really well a moment before and you know what? It was really fun. <laughs> it was stupid, and it was disappointing that I died when things were going well. But it was such a neat story <laughs> that you enjoy it because of that. I hear that. And, and so, so that's a, that's another whole entire another entire class of games: the Agents of Smirch, Barbarian Prince, where where you actually really do get a story because you're reading chapters. Yeah, I hear that. But I think that just I mean, for many of them, I just feel like the story that could be evoked just got forgotten about in favor of just a game and that people didn't want to, that. It just wasn't important to be able to have a story involved here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's some games where, where the, the game mechanic is, is maybe too small an incident in time to really give you a story. You know, the games that we've said have Rob, like Robinson Crusoe or maybe even Barbarian Prince or pandemic legacy it's a story that evolves over a period of time and so so that gives a sense but some games are you know 
we'll hear you in an instant and, and you know, see who wins. I don't know. Then again, I guess you get like the Virgo Brothers that is almost an instant in time. It's a very short period, but you get a story out of that too, I bet. Well, have you played Virgo Brothers yet? I haven't, but you tell me about it. And it's it sounded very, like there's a very funny in there. short story. I'd say it's a funny short story. And I think that's almost evoked because I think that really the best way to have a story is to have a unique something, create a mechanic of the game and have that mechanic actually be involved. With Brogle Bros, I think the only real story you get is from the unique items that you end up stealing. Like you end up stealing a cat or a jewel or something like that and have those things actually be involved in the course of the game. Whereas all the story that Mistfall wrote, all those things aren't really involved in the game because really you just go and fight your way through through the bad guys. I mean, you can start trying to find out story for the mini events, but for the overarching event, it's just, oh, there's a big bad guy and that's what it is that, that I'm involved. Whereas with um, Burgle Bros, the story comes out and, oh, you stole that thing and it just kept messing you up and, oh, wasn't that funny. Hmm. So... I guess putting a good story in a game is hard to do. You have to tie. I think the, like basic, the basic rule for how to get a good story in the game is you have to tie the mechanics into the story and have the story actually affect the mechanics in a lasting way. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes the mechanics are just affected by the structures of the game, which doesn't make which doesn't make for a good story. Just makes for mm-hmm. might make for a fun game, but doesn't make for a good story. All right. Neat. I, I think we've run this into the ground. Well, I think that we've just discussed the idea of having stories in games. <laughs> I don't think we've necessarily run yes. into the ground. I think we've, I think we've no. created a good story between the two of us right here. There you go. And the end. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to us on this. Uh, yep. All right. Have a happy holidays, whatever holidays, if any, you celebrate. And we'll talk to you. I think I don't think we'll talk to you before the New Year's, so... Talk to you again after New Year's. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.